open God's holy word to the book of Jeremiah, Jeremiah chapter 8, our focus this morning will be on verses 4 through 17, Jeremiah 8, 4 through 17, you shall say to them, thus says Yahweh, when men fall, do they not rise again? If one turns away, does he not return? Why then has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? They hold fast to deceit. They refuse to return. I have paid attention and listened, but they have not spoken rightly. No man relents of his evil, saying, What have I done? Everyone turns to his own course, like a horse plunging headlong into battle. Even the stork in the heavens knows her times, and the turtle dove, swallow and crane, keep the time of their coming, but my people know not the rules of Yahweh. How can you say, we are wise and the law of Yahweh is with us? But behold, the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. The wise men shall be put to shame. They shall be dismayed and taken. Behold, they have rejected the word of Yahweh. So what wisdom is in them? Therefore, I will give their wives to others and their fields to conquerors. Because from the least to the greatest, everyone is greedy for unjust gain. From prophet to priest, everyone deals falsely. They have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, Peace, peace, when there is no peace. Were they ashamed when they committed abomination? No, they were not at all ashamed. They did not know how to blush. Therefore, they shall fall among the fallen. When I punish them, they shall be overthrown, says Yahweh. When I would gather them, declares Yahweh, there were no grapes on the vine, nor figs on the fig tree. Even the leaves are withered. And what I gave them has passed away from them. Why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For Yahweh our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poisoned water to drink because we have sinned against Yahweh. We looked for peace, but no good came. For a time of healing, but behold, terror. The snorting of their horses is heard from Dan. At the sound of the neighing of their stallions, the whole land quakes. They come and devour the land and all that fills it, the city and those who dwell in it. For behold, I am sending among you serpents, adders that cannot be charmed, and they shall bite you, declares Yahweh. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Father, grant repentance this morning. You commissioned your prophet in this book to declare your word both for tearing down and building up. It's my prayer that there would not simply be tearing down. There wouldn't simply be conviction. There wouldn't simply be insight into the depth of our sinfulness but that you would build us up 
in the blessed gospel of Jesus Christ, that there would be not only conviction, but there would be comfort. And we admit, Father, we are worthy of nothing of that comfort, nothing of that gospel, only worthy of being torn down this morning. And so it is for the name of Christ that we plea these things, that He be exalted in the salvation of His bride. Come and bless Your Word and make us holy unto Him. In Christ we pray. Amen. In chapter 1 of this largest of books, we saw the prophet's calling and his message. Then in chapters 2 through 6, the dominant theme was Israel's whoredom. And then in chapters 7 through 8-3, the first major prose section that we've come to in this book, we saw Israel's worship, her hypocritical worship, her false worship of the true God and her true worship of false gods. And now in 8 and verse 4, we return to poetry. This section from 8-4 through 10-25 is a collection of miscellaneous prophecies, if you will. In our text this morning, 8, 4 through 17, we see that Judah's behavior is unnatural, verses 4 through 7. Her thinking is unwise, verses 8 through 12. And thus, because of this, her end is to be undone, verses 13 through 17. Once again, we see this opening with Jeremiah receiving a word about a word. A word comes to Jeremiah about a word that's to go to Judah. But this command, you shall say to them, is especially striking as it comes on the heels of that command for Jeremiah not to pray for them. He's not to pray for them, 7 verse 16 Instead, he is to say to them. He is not to make intercession to God for them. He is to pronounce judgment from God on them. And God again here puts Judah in the dock, questioning her. Not only showing by these questions her guilt, but exposing how foolish She is in incurring this guilt. This line of questioning is similar to the way God questioned in chapter 2 and verse 32 when he asked, Can a virgin forget her ornaments or a bride her attire? Yet my people have forgotten me days without number. Or again in chapter 3 verses 1 and 2, If a man divorces his wife and she goes from him and becomes another man's wife, will he return to her? Would not that land be greatly polluted? You have played the whore with many lovers, and would you return to me, declares Yahweh. As in those instances, the questions God puts forward here, well, the answer to them is obvious. When men fall, do they not rise? If one turns away, does he not return? The idea there being either that when a man turns away from home... Does he not return back? Or when a man turns away, when he goes off the path and he loses his way and he realizes, I've gone the wrong way, does he not return, retracing his steps back to the way 
that was true. And so he asked, if this is how man naturally behaves, this is common sense, then why has this people turned away in perpetual backsliding? She has chosen the wrong way, the broad and easy way that leads to destruction, and despite continued warnings, she insists on going down this path. You remember God called for her in chapter 6 and verse 16 to stand by the roads and look and ask for the ancient paths where the good way is and walk in it and find rest for their souls. And their reply was, we will not walk in it. So Judah has fallen, and it's not that she can't get up, it's that she won't get up. Pride has led to her fall, and now her pride refuses to rise, to return. She's like the child that was repeatedly warned, if you do that, and then having fallen flat on their face, now you are graciously encouraging them to rise, but now pride, the same pride that refused to heed your warnings, refuses to heed your exhortation to stand up, dust off, return. The same thing is happening here. She holds fast to her lies, verse 5. She refuses to return. We'll even see later on, she will recognize these lies. She will recognize the sin, and still she won't return. Well, God pays attention. He listens. He pays attention to their not paying attention. He hears their not hearing. I don't think the ESV rendering here in verse 6 is the best. I think it goes astray by inserting one little word unduly. But, as if there's this contrast between God's paying attention and they're not speaking rightly. Rather, I think the NAS does a better job I have listened and heard, they have spoken what is right, not right. No man repented of his wickedness, saying, what have I done? The the point is, God is paying attention, He is listening, and He sees what they're saying. Not a contrast, but a pronouncement that their sins are not hidden. God pays attention to their not paying attention. He hears their deafness, and their deafness is indicated by what they say, or rather, by what they don't say. They don't speak rightly of their sin. They don't call their sin, sin. They don't commit this and then ask, what have I done in retrospect? They're like that oblivious guest that trumps mud and manure into your home and doesn't have a clue and leaves with a smile on their face. When a man sins and doesn't question himself, his conscience is cauterized. That kind of obliviousness to sin is indicative of a long trek into sin. Man is continually trying to sear his conscience, to silence the questions, to de-man himself, to make an animal a beast of himself, to, to... War against being made in the image of God with the light of nature testifying against Him in all of this. And the society that, that so cauterizes the conscience, that, that 
doesn't question sin, begins that journey by redefining sin. God spoke of this in Isaiah 6.20 saying, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And we've seen that's what's happened up to this point. We'll, we'll see it again in this passage how they have so redefined things that they exempt themselves from God's truth. Instead of returning to Yahweh, walking the path of Yahweh, everyone turns to his own course like a horse plunging headlong into battle. So, so far in this passage, God has been putting forth these illustrations from nature of natural behavior. And he's shown how Israel's behavior is unnatural. And now he puts forth an instance from nature that is like Israel's behavior, but it's unnatural. The war horse plunging into battle. That's not normal. That's why war horses often have blinders. This is a horse consumed with bloodlust that charges into battle. Israel is mad with frenzy, the frenzy of war, as it were, plunging into sin. There's this ravenous desire, this bloodlust toward sin. Phil Riken comments, like the people of Jerusalem, we are incorrigible sinners. We do not just wander into sin, we gallop into it. Putting the whole of this part of the passage together. We don't just gallop into it. We gallop into it and then we trot away as if nothing of significance has happened. Whereas the birds of the heavens, they know their times. They know their seasons of migration. They're not made in the image of God and they follow a lesser rule. Whereas God's people, not mankind in general, but God's people that He's redeemed in covenant love, who He revealed Himself to, to them, speaking from the fire, they don't know the rules of Yahweh. Derek Kimner sums up the thrust of this portion of the text well, saying, in matters spiritual and moral, we act with a perversity which is quite unlike our common sense at other levels. Let alone the impressive wisdom of our fellow creatures, even the bird-brained. You see a similar argument in Isaiah 1, 2 through 3. Hear, O heavens, give ear, O earth, for Yahweh has spoken. Children I have reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. The ox knows its owner. The donkey, its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. This is unnatural. And yet we have to say, in, in a very real sense, sin is natural. It is our default inclination in Adam. In Adam, we are sinners. All that we do is sin. Left unto ourselves, unless God supernaturally acts, this is our natural state now. 1 Corinthians 2.14 tells us that the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So wisdom is now folly to us, and folly is now wisdom. 
But even so, what is natural to us is unnatural. All of God's creation, all of God's revelation testifies against us. We are going against the grain of creation. We are going against the grain of how we were created. Sinful man is like a fish trying to live on dry ground. This is seen in the way that Paul explains the consequences of us having suppressed the truth about God and worshiping the creation rather than the Creator. He says because of this, for this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, Romans 1, 26 and 27, For their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's not natural. And yet it is. Sin is a kind of insanity unto greater insanity. Sin is a plunge down the rabbit hole. Sin is nonsensical. Sin is senseless. It doesn't compute. All of God's creation, all of His revelation, everything testifies against it. Sin sticks out like a sore thumb and we call it a healthy finger. Sin is drinking poison knowingly, intentionally, and expecting to enjoy health. Sin is losing your way and continuing on the wrong path that leads to destruction and expecting to find happiness thereon. Sin is a rebellion of infinite creatures against an omnipotent God and hoping for victory. Sin is repeatedly adding one plus one over and over and over again and expecting anything other than two because surely this time it will come out differently. Sin is eating the forbidden fruit again and again and again and expecting anything other than death and the curse this time. So what hope can there be for fallen man when his natural behavior is now so unnatural. Only the supernatural grace of a merciful God. The hope is not something natural. It's not something within. It's not something below. It must be something supernatural. Something without. Something above. Perhaps the most vivid illustration of man's folly and the goodness of God's grace is that parable that we opened with this morning, that of the prodigal. There was a man who had two sons, and the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of my property that is coming to me. Divided his property between them, Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless 
living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into his fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? But I perish here with hunger. I will arise and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe. And put it on him. And put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. And bring the fatted calf and kill it. And let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead. And is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. How does a sinner come to himself? How does he turn back? That parable is part of a trio. And in the other two, the parable of the lost coin, the parable of the lost sheep, in both of those there is a seeker. And whenever you look at him in sequence, the question you're left asking, it's really, it's really clear that Jesus is bringing you to ask this, is where's the seeker in this story? Who should have sought out the younger brother? Because he's clearly making a parallel with who the, the elder brother is. In that final parable with the Pharisees, it should have been their responsibility to seek out that which was lost as under shepherds, as those entrusted with the words of God. Who should have sought out the sheep? Well, who did seek out the sheep? The the true elder brother sought out the wayward prodigal son. The reason that sinners turn to the Father is because of the Son. Acts 5.31 tells us, God exalted Him, exalted Christ at His right hand as leader and Savior. God exalted Him as leader and Savior to give repentance to Israel and forgiveness of sins. It is of God. That a sinner comes to himself and says, I've sinned against heaven. To look upon his sins and ask, what have I done? God supernaturally gives repentance in Christ by the Spirit so that there are new hearts that love and believe And trust and obey God. This is of God. When fools turn 
wise, all glory is to God. No sinners are self-educated unto salvation. When sinful fools graduate unto saintly wisdom, summa laud, highest praise, goes to God and God alone. 1 Corinthians 1, 28-30 tells us God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of Him you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Saints, Look at the folly of your natural state and give praise to the manifold wisdom of God revealed in the gospel of Jesus Christ by which you have been supernaturally turned back. And sinners, those of you especially who've grown up hearing the rules and ways of Yahweh, but you persist in your sin... Do not rely upon your own wisdom. Take heed not to respond as Judah does here. Verse 8, God asked her, How can you say we are wise? And the law of Yahweh is with us. There seems to be the same kind of sentimental, mystical attitude towards the law that they express towards the temple. You remember in chapter 7 and verse 4, they were warned not to trust in these deceptive words, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh, the temple of Yahweh. They think because they, they possessed these tokens of God's covenant love that they enjoyed all the blessings thereof. Now, whereas the temple was treated as a talisman, we have the temple, we're protected. It seems as though they think they can glean wisdom from the word of the Lord just by osmosis. We possess the rules of Yahweh, therefore we are wise. But a book on the shelf is not the same thing as a book on, in the head. And the law of God written on a scroll possessing it is not the same thing as the law of God written on the heart. How can they say this? Because the lying pen of the scribes has made it into a lie. They've twisted and perverted it such that they believe they're wise when they are continuing in their folly. They are those that Peter spoke of as ignorant and unstable, twisting the Scriptures to their own destruction. Seminaries and churches are full of such fools today that give a kind of, of wisdom that seems wise but is really folly. Jude warns that certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. And the living caricature of this is the prosperity gospel preachers. They say blessing, 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 but they're cursed, cursed, cursed. They speak of having a kind of direct kind of wisdom and they're completely void of it. 
And that such folly dominates Christian radio, dominates Christian television, and is the number one Christian ex-Christian, is, is in scare quotes in all those instances, Christian export spreading epidemically across the global south, speaks to the sinful senselessness of men. Prosperity teachers are a joke. They're a cartoon. But like children, we think the animation is real. We've watched an episode of their spoof on Sesame Street and we think ourselves doctors of theology in light of it. And the problem evidenced in all of this is that we malfunction not at the level of our brain, but our heart. The issue isn't that we're hard in the head, but we're hard in our hearts. It's not that spirituality is desired by God to be absorbed by some kind of osmosis, some kind of experience, such as is often thought of in our evangelical culture today. Rather, it's simply obedience to His Word that God demands. That's the spiritual man. The man who it's obvious that the law of God has been written on his heart by the Spirit. You see, they've rejected the Word. So, verse 9, how can they be wise? The fear of Yahweh is the beginning of wisdom, Proverbs tells us. And that fear of Yahweh is evidenced by obeying His commands. And so, how can they be wise? There's no fear, there's no obedience. The fear of Yahweh means keeping God's commands, not sleeping on His commands. The fear of Yahweh is evidence in obedience. It's not resting on God's commands as though they're some kind of pillow, but walking on them as they are a path that demonstrates the fear of Yahweh. Because they've rejected the word of Yahweh, these wise guys, verse 9, will be shamed, dismayed, taken. Their wives and their fields will be given to others. And in this way, the, their wisdom will be exposed as folly. And then you're reminded again of why this is occurring in verses 10 through 12. They rejected and therefore we have these consequences. I'll give their wives to others, their fields to conquerors. And these verses 10 through 12, they restate largely... A passage we saw in chapter 6 and verses 12 through 15. But you can see why they're rehearsed again. They fit the text so well. Now the wise, meaning all of Israel, every one of them, are greedy for unjust gain. They deal falsely. They deal falsely because they're greedy for unjust gain. And especially in view here are the leaders, as we're told, from prophet to priest, they all deal falsely. They're healing the wounds of God's people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. And though the prophets and priests, the leaders, are chiefly in view here, everyone's culpable in this wisdom because this is the deceit that they hold fast to, refusing to turn away from, verse 5. When they commit abomination, they are not ashamed. They don't blush. They don't know how to blush, verse 12. And this is why no one 
after their sin, ask, what have we done? Again, you see this picture of the seared conscience. Therefore, they will fall among those among the fallen. When he punishes them, they will be overthrown. Verse 12. Judah, who has fallen and won't get up, will now fall and be unable to get up. She fell in rebellion. She's soon to fall in judgment. Jesus said, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man who built his house on the rock and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat on that house, but it did not fall because it had been founded on the rock. And everyone who hears these words of mine and does not do them will be like a foolish man who built his house on the sand and the rain fell and the floods came and the winds blew and beat against that house and it fell and great was the fall of it. Now critical in understanding what Jesus said there is the magnitude of what he says concerning himself. Anyone who hears these words of mine and does them will be like a wise man. Hearing His words and obeying Him is wisdom. You remember when Jesus confronted the the Pharisees in that one instance and He said, you search the Scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life and it is they that bear witness about Me. Yet you refuse to come to Me that you may have life. They thought they were wise unto eternal life because they had the Scriptures. And Jesus tells them reading the Scriptures in a Christless way is void and empty of salvation. How can one say they are wise unless they've built on Christ? And how can one say they've built on Christ unless they obey Him and follow Him? 1 John tells us by this we know that we've come to know Him if we keep His commandments. It's not God's Word in the head, but in the heart coming out through the hands that bears witness that we know Him. The demons know Him with their heads. The Word of God must be in our heads if it is to be in our hearts, but it must not only be in our heads. The wise fear and love Christ from the heart. And that knowledge is given by the Spirit. The next section relates to the previous two in that it unfolds the undoing of the wise. They're being overthrown. They're being shamed, dismayed, taken. But the way that the ESV opens up with verse 13 is confusing. There are basically two different translations, two different interpretations. This is one of those instances where translation and interpretation are unfortunately and inevitably bound up with one another. And so we have these two different interpretations represented by different ways of interpreting. First, you have the ESV 
When I would gather them, declares Yahweh, there are no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. The picture is of the disappointed farmer. This draws upon the vineyard imagery that we saw earlier in this book, chapter 2, verse 21. I planted you a choice vine, holy of pure seed. How then have you turned degenerate and become a wild vine? So first interpretation is that of a disappointed farmer. The second one we see in, in um, versions such as the New American Standard, Christian Standard, New American reads, I will surely snatch them away, declares Yahweh. There will be no grapes on the vine and no figs on the fig tree, and the leaf will wither, and what I have given them will pass away, or the Christian standard. I will gather them and bring them to an end. This is Yahweh's declaration. There will be no grapes on the vine, no figs on the fig tree. Even the leaf will wither. Whatever I have given them will be lost to them. Well, in those translations, the idea is not that we have a disappointed farmer, but rather that the vines are barren because God has stripped them. It's an act of judgment. Which one is true? I think the ESV testifies against itself. The first part of the interpretation going against the second part. And what I gave them has passed away from them. The idea is that gifts are being taken away from Judah. What I gave them is grapes, figs, these things being taken away. It's not Jeremiah 2 then, but Hosea 2 that provides the better parallel. Hosea 2, 8, 9, and 12. She, Israel, did not know that it was I who gave her the grain, the wine, and the oil, and who lavished her with silver and gold, which they used for Baal. Therefore, I will take back my grain in its time and my wine in its season. And I will take away my wool and my flax, which were to cover her nakedness. And I will lay waste her vines and her figs, of which she said, These are my wages which my lovers have given me. I will make them a forest, and the beast of the field shall devour them. So, what is Israel's response to this doom? Verse 14 why do we sit still? Gather together. Let us go into the fortified cities and perish there. For Yahweh our God has doomed us to perish and has given us poison water to drink because we have sinned against Yahweh. We looked for peace, but no good came for a time of healing. But behold, terror. What's her response? When a monster really is in the room, she pulls the sheets over her head. If you read this response and you think, this makes no sense. We're to perish, so let's do it over there. If you're thinking this makes no sense, I believe that's exactly the point. This is her wisdom. Drawn out to its full extent. Proverbs instructs us that the one who is wise is cautious and turns away from evil, but the fool is reckless and careless. Here it is. Reckless, careless. And our text closes with two vivid metaphors that unpack the terror that is going to come upon them. First, on the northern border, Dan approaches the Calvary. 
heading south towards Jerusalem. And the very neighing of the horses causes the land to quake. They will devour all the land. You see, this goes back to what we saw earlier. Him stripping bare all His blessings that He showered on them that they are ascribing to false gods. Second, serpents are sent among them. Adders that cannot be charmed. You can't use any little talisman like the temple. You can't use some kind of sacrifice to get out of this. I'm going to send them among you. You cannot charm them. You can't practice any kind of magical worship to deal with this. They shall bite you. Here these serpents are, I think it's clearly a metaphor. Same way with the horses, though there were actual horses advancing on them. This is, this is much more metaphorical. But you can't help but recall, can you, that time whenever God actually did send serpents on His grumbling people in the wilderness. But in that instance, the people cried out. And they pled with Moses to plead for them. And God instructed Moses to make a bronze serpent and set it on a pole. That anyone who looked, who was bitten, would live. Do you not see how striking what, I, what Jeremiah says here is then? Same plague. No cure. No mercy. Israel recognizes that her sin brings this upon her. She recognizes that all the lies she believes are in vain. She looked for good, but none came. For peace, but no good came. A time of healing, but behold, terror. She has so hardened herself with her sins that even recognizing that this is a judgment for her sin, recognizing that all her idols are vain, she does not turn from her ways. And thus, there is no cure, no grace, no mercy. But, this is the book of Jeremiah, wherein more clearly than any other, the hope of the new covenant is set before us. And the Lord of the new covenant once spoke to one of the supposed wise, telling him, no one has ascended into heaven except the one who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. And so I would plead with you, 
If you see that you are a child of wrath because of the folly of your sin. If you see the judgment due on you because of your sin, like Israel does. And if you see the vanity of all your idols and how they cannot provide what you've hoped for in them, don't pull the blanket over your head resolved to perish. But hear the word of Christ, of the crucified and risen Christ, who died in the stead of sinners that they might have life and look and live. Look to Christ and you will have peace. You will have good. You will have healing. And there will be no terror. Return. Be wise. Look to Christ and live. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your holy word. I pray again, you grant repentance and faith to those who are hopelessly in rebellion because salvation is of the Lord. Christ is the wisdom of God unto salvation. We look to you, we look nowhere else. Save the perishing Father. For the glory of His name. And Father, keep us from the apostasy that comes by drifting into sin. Redefining sin. Hardening our conscience bit by bit. And continuing on the path of destruction. Keep us, Father. In Christ's name we ask this. Amen.